Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We're studying these minor prophets, these small books tucked into the end of the Old Testament. And we have been studying the story of Jonah, prophet of God, the northern part of the country, Israel. And uh, Jonah was called to go preach to the Assyrians, a cruel uh, enemy of Israel and of the whole world. And Jonah disobeyed. He went the other way. The word came down to Jonah. Jonah went down to Joppa and then down to the bottom of the ship and down, down, down into the ocean. And then the Lord sent a great fish to swallow him. And last week we left him on the dry land, having been vomited up by the whale. We, uh, the children, love these minor prophets. We get to start to talk about gross bugs, and we use vomit in church. Here, he's vomited out upon the dry land. And Jonah appears to obey the Lord the second time the word comes, but it's not exactly obedience. The salvation that comes to Jonah... It's as great a work of grace as it is to save these Ninevites. As great as the grace must be to save and continually save us too. Let's prepare to experience afresh that grace as we find it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. You can find that on page 775 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Open our eyes, O Lord that we would behold wonderful things of the good news of Jesus Christ revealed through the prophet Jonah today. May we respond humbly to this overwhelming grace. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. 
Pastor Paul Yonggi Cho was a South Korean pastor, died a few years ago. At one time, he was pastor of the largest church in the world, South Korean church. As his fame started spreading through the world, as his church was growing, everybody wanted him to come and preach at their church or at their conference. And, and uh, he tried to humble himself before the Lord, thinking that he would impress the Lord by saying, you know, Lord, I will go anywhere you want me to go. I will preach to any people you want me to preach to except the Japanese. Now, Pastor Cho had not grown up in the Second World War when some of those Japanese occupiers of Korea worked their atrocities against the people of Korea. He was not alive during the Second World War. He was born after the Korean conflict, but he held that grudge, as many Koreans did. And he held everyone in Japan responsible for those atrocities. And he was going to take his stand in solidarity with his people and not announce in any way the good news of the gospel or extend fellowship to Japanese people. Well, as we've learned from Jonah, God does not allow us to set the terms of our calling. And so God kept after Pastor Cho. Uh, invitation after invitation came to him to come to Japan. Finally, he conceded and went to a pastor's conference. There's a thousand pastors, a thousand Japanese pastors gathered to hear Pastor Cho. When he arrived, he said his heart, he tells the story on himself, his heart overtook his brain, it overtook his mouth, and all he could say was, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. To those thousand pastors, I hate you. Now, none of those pastors were participants in those atrocities of the Second World War. They may not have even known anybody who was. They didn't get up, however. They didn't get up and walk out because he said what he did to them, because he held them somehow accountable. Instead, because they themselves had been overcome by the mercy of God, each one of them, though they are not guilty of that crime against the Koreans, knew that they were recipients of the mercy of God. They had, they had committed other sins that were just as atrocious as those. They were guilty nonetheless, and they felt compassion for their brother who had been so hurt by those who were of their country. So one by one, every one of those 1,000 pastors walked up to Pastor Cho and knelt at his feet and said, please forgive us. Forgive our people. Forgive our nation. We love you. 1,000 laments, 1,000 confessions, 1,000 pleas for forgiveness overcame Pastor Cho so that he said once again his heart overwhelmed his brain and his words and he stood up and instead of saying I hate you I love you I love you I love you Pastor Cho was guilty of the same heresy as Jonah Jonah a prophet of God was teaching a heresy and he knew it and many of his 
fellow Israelites believed that heresy. And this is what it was. We are more deserving than other people on this planet because of our ethnicity, of our birth line, and because we're better behaved than others. We are more deserving of God's favor because of our birth line and because we're better behaved. Jonah knew that was false, but he lived it and preached it anyway. And the people of Israel followed it for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. That was the heresy that had taken root among the Israelites. Jonah is confronting that heresy by his own very humble confession of how the Lord broke him and overwhelmed him by his grace. And here is how it happened. It wasn't that God beat that legalism and that, and that uh, superiority complex out of him. It was instead, as the Bible says, the kindness of God that drew him to repentance. I want you to understand that kindness as we observe not only what's happening in this chapter, but as we observe what has happened with Jonah thus far in the first two chapters. This is the nature of God's grace. Jonah, you remember, confessed last when we studied last week, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. As he's twisting and turning in the sea, and he's swallowed up and he's saved by the big fish. His mind goes back to temple worship, as we said last week, and he remembers that pattern of confession of sin and forgiveness and atoning blood and response of gratitude, and it reminds him all salvation comes from the Lord. And the Bible, you have to remember, salvation doesn't refer just to that initial conversion. Salvation is the whole course of your life from conversion until God gets you safely into heaven. And here he professes with his lips salvation, all of it, from eternity past into your history, from your initial conversion, through your many times of waywardness and your wandering. God saves until he gets you home. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the central message of this passage because it's in the precise center of the book. Jonah places it there, and it's the central message of the Bible itself. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and that grace, that overwhelming grace, salvation belonging to the Lord can only be responded to with humility, never with thinking, well, I'm grateful for grace and I deserve it, or I'm grateful for grace and God is lucky to have me. I'm grateful for grace and uh, it's too bad that others don't qualify. There's only one response to grace, humility. Now, what are the characteristics of that salvation? that should overwhelm us and make us humble and heralds of the same. It is, first of all, that it subdues us. Grace subdues us. God subdues us by grace. God subdues us by grace. Now, you'll say that doesn't really fit what's happening here with Jonah. God subdued Jonah with wind and waves and a fish. Yes, 
But what Jonah deserved was for the wind and waves to kill him. When, when Jonah disobeyed God, God had every right to kill him, to kill him with the wind and the waves. God had every right to let him drown in his suicide attempt. But he saved him by this fish. God subdues us with his grace. Jacques Ellul, a famous sociologist, wrote a little book about Jonah. It's a classic. And he said uh, early in that book, God, God is known, as a result of this story, God could be called the God of second chances. But in reality, he said, God is not the God of second chance. God is the God of the 999th chance. God is constantly pursuing rebels and disobedient people who don't deserve his salvation. Jonah proves it. Jonah proves God's gracious mercy. David proves it. The dying thief proves it. Peter proves it. It's been granted to all believers through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, you know, God, God is roughing me up. What I've been going through is, is, is not a, 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 a discipline suitable to the crime. But do you realize that God doesn't, he doesn't enjoy making you uncomfortable? He doesn't enjoy punishment. He doesn't even enjoy discipline even more than a, than a loving parent loves disciplining their child. But he does it because he loves us. And he only does it when we've turned away from him. When we're going in an opposite direction or just not living consciously with him because he knows as long as we do, as long as we persist in that self-seeking, self-justifying direction, we are becoming less and less human. So it's the whole process of the Christian life that is called salvation. It's what John Calvin said the whole Christian life is called repentance. One long act of turning away from ourselves back to Him. It's one long act of being put back under the cross of Christ, which is not a punishment, which is not salvation by asceticism, but freedom and life and humanizing uh, love only occurs as we're living in death to self and alive to Christ. So God is constantly having to grab us from the far country or grab us from wallowing outside of the cross and putting us back under that cross. And the process of putting us back under that cross in the pathway of true life can sometimes be really, really rough. It can cause us to doubt the Lord's love. And to doubt his grace. And to think that he is punishing us and that he enjoys it. When nothing could be farther from the truth. And Jonah is telling us that. Jonah says from the belly of the fish salvation belongs to the Lord. And he hasn't experienced half of what the Lord still has to do with him. I worked with a, served with an elder many years ago. One of my best friends. He's now gone on to be with the Lord. His wife was a very dear friend of mine, too. She was a brilliant woman. She had the IQ of a genius, could have been a medical doctor if not for her bipolar illness. 
is a very advanced case, severe case of bipolar depression. She found medications, and medications were not as refined then as they are now, and they mostly suppressed her, and it was frustrating to her because her mind was so bright and running so many different directions. She could do so much more, she thought, if she weren't on this medication, and at times she would take herself off of it, and she would feel better, but it would be dangerous for her and for her family. On one occasion, she couldn't get regulated again back on that medication it was going to she just wouldn't participate and her husband had the horrendous choice of had to make the decision along with his son who was a lawyer to take her to court and take a medical conservancy of her so that they could get her into the hospital and get her medications regulated again and she really never forgave them for it she did get better she functioned better and she, she knew in her heart of hearts that she was loved, but she didn't forgive that. It was a really difficult course of life. And there would be then occasions, there were a couple of occasions while I was her pastor, that her husband had to make that choice again of, of putting her into a hospital where she could have her medications regulated again and she could come back into a functional lifestyle that was safe for her and for her family. When she was in those states, she didn't want any of her family to, to, to visit her. I was the only one who could come and talk to her. And the whole time she would say, why do they hate me so much? Why do they, why do, they do this to me? Why do they lock me up against my will? They know there's nothing wrong with me. Why are they doing this to me? And I, none of my answers suffice to say again and again, it's because they, we love you. My friend loved his wife very, very well, took care of her into her when her uh, mental illness became very advanced, and he took care of her until she died without her ever really appreciating how much he loved her. But he loved her so much, as another friend of mine said, he loved her so much he was willing to let her hate him. He loved her enough to let, him hate, let her hate him for a while. God loves you so much, he is willing to let you hate him for a while. He loves you so much, he will not, if you belong to him, allow you to continue to go off into the far, far country. And if, you're, if there are waves and winds and big fish, swallowing you in your life right now. You mustn't take it as God's hatred of you, His punishment of you, but rather His strong, His strong love, His tough love, His courageous love, willing to love you enough to let you hate Him for a while. He subdues us with His grace. There's only one response to that kind of grace. It's humility. Another characteristic of his salvation is that he suffers for rebels. He suffers for us. Now, I said that Jonah did not, he only ostensibly repented. Look very carefully at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's grace in itself. That God would lower himself to give Jonah a second chance to bring his word to him again. 
And so, as I was taught in Sunday school, the reason Jonah obeyed the second time is that God scared him to death. But I don't think that's quite true. That doesn't fit the rest of the book because Jonah's heart hasn't changed a bit in terms of accepting the, 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 the reason that God wants him to go to Nineveh. Here's what I think is happening. Now, this is my opinion. You judge it carefully, but look at verse 2. There's something a little different from the original call. Arise, go to Nineveh, God says, that great city. Now, we heard that before. It's a great city because of its sin and because it's a big city. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That part is the same that we read in chapter 1-2. But here, this is added. Cry out against it the message that I tell you. Now, what is the message? We know it from Jonah's preaching. He says in verse 4, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think that's why Jonah was so eager to keep keep the commandment the second time it came to him. He thinks God has finally come to his senses. The first time he hears, go and preach to Nineveh. The second time he says, I want you to preach this message to Nineveh, 40 days and they will be destroyed. That will preach, Jonah says. I like that message. Let's get going. However, God ruins Jonah's sermon. His first day, he's only been at it one day. It's going to be three days to traverse the city. The first day, everybody gets saved. Everybody puts on sackcloth and ashes, and it reaches even up to the, the king. And it's, the, it's, the, it's the physical manifestation of their repentance, and repentance is just turning to the Lord for mercy. Everybody says, maybe God will be merciful to us. Now, you notice that they're not sorting all kinds of moral laundry. They're not saying, now, wait a minute. Not every one of us is, is guilty for those atrocities against, against uh, human rights with, you know, we didn't all participate in, in that violence of impaling our victims or skinning them alive or burning them like our warriors have done. They don't do that kind of sorting of the laundry. They just all incorporately lament They all recognize that they need mercy. And they recognize that even their animals need mercy. They are prodigal with their repentance. And as a result, they experience prodigal grace. Well, this is so desperately needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. Just think how we've spent so much ink and energy and words over the last several years as an evangelical church in particular. How many books we've written to justify ourselves, to say why we are not guilty. How many times we've said that we are not guilty. How many churches have we left? How many churches have we started Because we want to make clear that we are not responsible for any of the maladies of our nation, of our culture. Instead of obeying that basic command, if my people, 
which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Why are we not seeing revival? Because we're not responding to grace with humility. There's no relationship can prosper in self-justification. It's the basic problem of every marriage struggle. When, when uh, trying to counsel marriages, frequently the problem is one or the other or both are justifying self. Inevitably, somebody is more wrong than the other, but neither is innocent. And you'll never get anywhere in healing a marriage relationship as long as you're justifying self. No relationships among groups of people. And no one can ever thrive in a relationship with a holy God who alone is just and perfect as long as you're saying, okay, I'm sort of guilty of that, but not of that. The only response is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what these Ninevites did. And that's what they taught to Jonah. It's their example that Jesus latches onto in the New Testament when he says, the only sign given to this generation, you who are continuing to take pride in your ethnicity and your good behavior, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. That is, the Ninevites. You, Ninevites, did what you need to do, and that is to ask God for his mercy, just as Jonah had to ask for him the same. But remember, the point that I announced was that, that, uh, we, that God suffers with rebels. Where do I get that? Because, you, you know, God, how in the world did God forgive these people? How did he forgive Jonah? He can't sweep it under the rug. He's a just God. He can't just ignore it. He, he, he has to atone for it in some way. Now, what God is doing is fulfilling His promise. There's a promise, a very basic promise made in the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. Write it down and look it up sometime. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. God announced this through His prophet Jeremiah. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned for her. God only announces judgment. He only pronounces threats to produce repentance. And when we turn around, when we turn back to him, he stops the discipline. He stops the judgment. That's exactly what he does here. Forty days and you will be destroyed. They repent. God says, I relent of that promise. Now, how can he do that? Is he capricious? Does he just change his mind? Is he wanton? Is he wince? Well, how does he change his mind like that? Well, you notice the language. If they repent, I will relent. God's changing his mind, his turning from judgment, is the Hebrew word nacham. And nacham doesn't mean that he changes his mind on a whim, nakam, is inner suffering. I will have mercy and it will cost me 
if that nation turns away from its sin, I will restrain bringing judgment against them. But it will cost me, specifically, it will cost me the death of my son to provide the atonement enabling me to forgive them and maintain my justice. Jacques Ellul adds in his little book, every time we see God meeting repentance with forgiveness, we see the blood of Jesus Christ throughout the Bible. How do you respond to that kind of grace? How do you respond to that kind of grace when God gives you forgiveness that you don't, not only that you not deserve, but He bears the scars for it? It's like I watched a couple of years ago a, a, a firefighter paramedic saving a German shepherd in one of the floods in Texas had gotten away from someone who was drowning. They'd saved the woman, and then they're going after the dog. And this dog, no matter what it did, was trying to, he was trying to, he thought he was trying to, 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 to swim to safety, but he was swimming more and more into danger. And so this firefighter paramedic put himself in the way of danger in, those, in the torrents, but also with that dog dog nipping at him and scratching him and clawing him and finally he overpowered the dog and brought him to safety and then he was giving the news conference with blood dripping down his face and from his hands and he was saying I'm so glad the dog is now safe the day will come when Christ is your savior you arrive in heaven and you won't ask why did you rough me up like you did why did you subdue me like you did? You'll only see his scars, which are the proof of the persistence of his subduing and the suffering he has borne to forgive you every time you, even in a halfway, with a halfway heart as Jonah's, come back to him. That grace can only be received can only be received it can never be earned and then the third thing I want you to see from this passage is that when God saves he saves with generosity he never saves just with enough just enough to save you from hell just enough to get you by but when you finally repent and give up on that idea that you deserve more favor than someone else or you are better and better behaved by somebody else and God should smile on you or when you give up on that idea, even if it's moved you to despair, that somehow you've got to make yourself good enough to be received by the Savior. When you understand that it's only by the blood of Christ and received by faith alone, then you'll discover that He doesn't just give you enough. He overwhelms you with His grace. God didn't just save the few people who put on sackcloth and ashes. He didn't just save the, the military people who were most guilty. He didn't just save the higher-ups. He saved everybody. He saved even the animals from destruction. God is prodigal in His grace. When we talk about the gospel, the good news, what makes the gospel good news is that it is beyond what we could ever imagine in its goodness. Gospel means unexpected, surprising, unconventional, prodigal, extravagant, not supposed to happen 
grace and love. And when, we, when you ask, what, how should I respond to this particular situation, this particular offense or this wrongdoing? Or how should I respond to this situation in my culture? There is a natural, reflexive response, which is seldom the right one. And then you have to wait and ask, what would a gospel response be? What would be the unexpected response? The unconventional, the surprising, the way it's not supposed to happen kind of response be? And God will give you guidance for that by his own example. I mean, just in this book, uh, Jonah sitting in Israel one day asking, I wonder, how, I wonder how we should respond to this horrific, despotic, tyrannical nation that keeps marauding against us and, and, over and, 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 uh, and, and dehumanizing people all over this world. How, how should we respond to that? And God says, in effect, I know what we should do. I should send you up there to announce my message to them. And instead of fighting them and hating them any longer, I'm going to win them to myself and they're all going to be in your church. None of us would ever have thought of that. Jonah didn't. And even when he did think about it, he didn't want it to happen. Or what about this? What should a God do, a perfectly holy and good and loving and beautiful God do, who made human beings in his image to live in perfection and to experience utter bliss for eternity, and yet they turned on him in rebellion and said, we don't trust you, and we want to try to take this thing over ourselves, and we're going to announce ourselves as your enemies. How should God respond to that? We never would have dreamed of the way he did. This is what I'll do. I'll send my only son, my precious son, and he'll take the wrath that they are deserving, he'll take it on them, on himself, and I will save them. We call that gospel. And we respond to that gladly, receiving it for ourselves, or we must. And when we do, we also should learn to imitate it to others. For many of us, it may mean, for some of us, it may mean unlearning what we have taken to be gospel truth for many years. Let me give you an example. Coming at it from another biblical character named Nicodemus. I got this insight recently from my friend Mark Ross who came over from Columbia, South Carolina at Erskine Seminary to teach in our seminary, Memphis City Seminary, taught our students in ethics. And uh, he, was ex he was trying to illustrate to, to us that, that God's saving by grace alone was not something that was invented in the New Testament. But God's saving by grace alone is true of the whole Bible. But it was, it was people who heretically added to that that we're saved by our 
ethnic lineage or we're, we're made more favorable by our better behavior and God rewards us for that. He said that never was. The, that's not what's revealed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Nicodemus exemplifies that. Nicodemus, you don't have to know the story to appreciate it. John chapter 3 is where it's told. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was the Billy Graham of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And so he wanted to talk to Jesus, but it was a great career risk for him to do that. So he comes in the middle of the night so no one would see him. And he tells Jesus, you know, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. We know that because of the miracles that you work. That's as far as he got when Jesus went right at him. And Jesus said, Unless you're born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. With that one sentence, less than 20 words, with that one sentence, Jesus took down the entire superstructure of Nicodemus' life and theology. He had been taught from his forefathers for centuries. He had been taught that the reason they had favor with God is because of their lineage and because they were better behaved than other people. And here with less than 20 words, Jesus said, no, no one, your, your lineage makes no difference and your good works make no difference. You are only saved by God saving you from above. You only receive that righteousness. And your good works may be a response to that, but your good works contribute nothing to it. Nicodemus was in despair. Can you imagine? His whole career has been dashed. Everything that he thought was true was now proven to be false. And so he expresses in despair according to the syntax of the Greek. How is, it, how is there any hope for me? I can't enter my mother's womb again. In other words, my theology teaches me that I can only make up for my wrongs by doing more good. And I can't live long enough to do that. I can't become un-Jewish by entering my mother's womb. He misses the point. Jesus says, you have to be saved from above. You receive it. The Spirit can come down and regenerate your heart, Nicodemus. Here is the good news. God so loved you, Nicodemus, that he sent me, his only begotten son, that if you'll just believe me, Receive me as your Savior. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. The teacher of Israel evidently turned to that. By the end of Jesus' days, sacrificing his career, sacrificing perhaps his family, his friends, everything. It had all been a lie. received grace but remember who's telling the story Jonah Jonah is saying effectively you Israelites if you think that you have believed a lie lived in a heresy so bad that there is no hope for you remember he says I taught the lie I knew that God was merciful and forgiving of sinners. I knew that he had a design to save the Gentiles and make them one with us. 
And I rebelled against that. And God saved me. You can't be worse than me. So follow. Follow me in humbling yourself before the same merciful God that showed mercy to the Ninevites. It's only one response to grace. That's to humble yourself, to receive it. And then you'll become a contagious messenger of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, this pastor. Have mercy on us. Turn our eyes away from self-justification looking down on others thinking in any way that we're more deserving than anyone Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on us as sinners and then make us contagious emissaries of this good news in Jesus name God's people said amen